Let us turn, if we have them in our hands, to our Bibles in Galatians. Um, Our text is in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2. There's some difficult verses in this section. If we have our Bibles, it may help us a little to follow. 19th verse and the 20th verse of Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says, For I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. These words follow an account of a crisis in the church at Antioch, when the gospel began to spread after Pentecost, Antioch in Syria was one of the first cities in which the gospel took hold with power in the population, among Jews and among Gentiles. It became the starting point of the great missionary movement that led Paul and Barnabas into Asia Minor and finally into Greece. It was the starting point of that movement. It was a strong and influential church. And here were laboring Paul and Barnabas. And then they were joined by their friend, Peter. Peter had been a friend of Paul for some while. We read in the previous chapter when Paul was in Jerusalem, he spent 14 days with Peter. And Peter came, no doubt at this point, to assist them in the work, in a very encouraging work. But then something went seriously wrong. And we read here that Paul opposed Peter to his face and charged him with hypocrisy. I withstood him, says the apostle, because he was to be blamed. Now, here was a serious crisis. One reason it was serious was because it was quite out in the open. This wasn't a private conversation. It was face-to-face and in the presence, evidently, of the church. You might have thought on a sensitive matter, the apostles would have spoken privately. But no, this was in the open. The reason it was in the open was that the cause of it was public, and therefore it had to be addressed publicly. It's the only record we have in the whole New Testament of two apostles of Christ being in such confrontation and disagreement. That makes it a very serious issue. And uh, Paul not only addressed it publicly, but as we see with our Bibles open, that it's written in the scriptures. And he's writing to the Galatian church, which is a long way away from Antioch, but he wanted them to understand the issue. And the word of God is clear for us today because we also need to understand the issue. It's open in Scripture. Now, what was the issue? What caused this crisis? And if you glance at it quickly, you might suppose, well, it's not really a very big thing. It was actually about, or connected with, eating. Eating. And to understand that, we have to remember the practice of the Old Testament church. It was given laws concerning 
foods that were clean, kosher foods, and foods that were unclean. And it was part of the law of God for the Old Testament church that these laws were observed. And the observation of these laws meant that if you were an Israelite, you did not eat with other races. They were all Gentiles. It was a separation. The Bible talks about the wall, the middle wall of separation. Couldn't eat with other people. Now, what we have in the record of Book of Acts is how this partition, this separation, was broken down. And it was so broken down that Paul writes in this letter to the Galatians that now there is neither Jew nor Greek, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. That old distinction which kept the Old Testament church exclusive, has gone. Neither Jew nor Greek, all one in Christ Jesus. Now this had been wonderfully demonstrated in Antioch. We read that in Acts chapter 11, it's a wonderful account, how these certain disciples went to Antioch and they spoke and preached and Luke says, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And as the onlookers in the city of Antioch saw it, here was an amazing sight. Races that were previously hostile, Jews, Gentiles, not only meeting together, loving one another, sitting together, eating together, and all, as people looked on, it was all to do with this person that they spoke about, Jesus Christ. And so Luke tells us the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. They didn't call themselves Christians, but the onlookers, when they saw what was happening and how these people all were one in agreement about Jesus Christ, they called them Christians. And it was a testimony to the power of the gospel. And part of their unity was that they ate together. It seems a normal thing to us, but no, it wasn't normal then. He's different Jews and Gentiles eating together. And apparently, in uh, those early times of the church, before the Lord's Supper was administered, sometimes the church would have a supper together. They were church fellowship meals. Sometimes they were called love feasts. It was a gathering of believers where they ate together and encouraged one another. Now, years passed. And here, Peter arrives to help, as I said before. And a little time after Peter came, we don't know how long, Paul says, there came from James certain men. And James was leader of the church in Jerusalem. These men who came from James, it doesn't mean that they were disciples of James, but they, it's a way of saying they came from the church in Jerusalem. And when they came, uh, instead of sharing in the church fellowship meals, they met only with Jews who were part of the church. And when Peter saw what was happening, he joined them. And that was the point at which Paul spoke openly to them all. When I saw, verse 14, chapter 2, 14, when I saw that they walked not uprightly, that is, according to the truth of the gospel, 
They weren't in line with the gospel. I said unto Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why do you compel those who are Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Now that means this. Peter, until this point, had not only been sharing in these common meals, but he had actually preached the message that we come to faith, to belong to Christ solely by faith in him. Christ does all for us. Christ has obeyed the law for us. Our only righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. But these people who believed that the Old Testament law had to be continued, they were really saying that the work of Christ was insufficient. There's something more that we need to do, perhaps quite a small thing you might think, uh, not eating together, a certain diet to be followed, but it was, it was, it was taking from the, the sufficiency of the gospel. Now, Peter had preached the sufficiency of the gospel. All we need, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, is faith in Christ. But by his example in eating with these people who were only eating with Jews, look at his words, when I saw that you weren't walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, if you live after the manner of the Gentiles, that is to say, you eat anything, which he had, why are you, by your example, compelling Gentiles to live as do the Jews? He was really saying, by his example, that you Gentiles really need to follow us and to follow these kosher laws that have come from the Old Testament. He wasn't saying it in words, but by example, and that was a very dangerous example. An example is a very powerful thing, especially when it comes from leaders, maybe leaders in the church. And so in verse 13 we read that the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. That old word, it, it really means hypocrisy. You see, Peter was saying we have everything in Christ, but then he was acting as though we also need to continue this Old Testament legal observation. That's the point. Move on to verse 18. I can't go verse by verse. It would take too long. But verse 18, Paul brings in the word I to soften his criticism. The criticism is, is for Peter and those who were with him. But for, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. That means if I go back to saying that these things are still necessary, I'm building up something which I've previously said was all ended. If I build again what I've destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So Paul's argument to this point is, if we are true believers in Christ, there is nothing to be added to make us accepted before God. Not any dietary laws, nothing of that kind, not circumcision, nothing else. And then he gives us this 
argument, which is a glorious statement of the gospel, starting in verse 19. He gives us three great facts that are true of real Christians. It struck me as, we, as I read these words again, I thought, here's a good thing for us at the beginning of a new year. We are called to examine ourselves, aren't we? New year. So that's always a good practice, but certain points in our lives and New Year is a good time, we should stop and examine ourselves. And here are three statements that Paul makes about a Christian that are definitive Christianity. Do we conform to these three facts? Now that's a question that I want you to consider this evening. I want us to understand what it's saying to us. And the first the first fact is this. The Christian, the apostle says, is a person who has died to the law of God. That's a Christian. Now, you, you know I'm still uh, living in times past a little bit. I'm still using the authorised version. I don't think the authorised version is perfect. And at this point, there's a little bit of weakness here. It's only to do with the tense, the tense of a verb. You, 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 front row youngsters here, you know that verbs have tenses. Some are present tense, some are future tense, some are past tense. And the King James says, uh, through the law, I am dead. To the, that's the present tense. The, 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 it's really a more, much more accurate to say, through the law, I have died to the law. It's a perfect tense. It's the past. It's done in the past. King James says, I am crucified with Christ. That sounds like the present tense, but really, again, as the modern versions have got it right, it's the past tense. I have been crucified with Christ. That's a vital thing to understand. He's not talking about a present process. I am being crucified. He's talking about something that has happened. And what he's saying is that a Christian is someone who has died to the law of God. I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ died, I died, says the apostle. It happened there in the past. Before Hadrian's Wall was ever built, 2,000 years ago, when our Lord died in Jerusalem, Paul says, on behalf of all Christians, I died when he died. The place, the time of my death was at the cross of Jesus Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I died with Christ. Now what does that mean? Well, that's why I read verse 19 as well. It's linked up with it. For, says the apostle, I, through the law, have died to the law. Through the law, I have died to the law. He's talking about a death that has no parallel, no other parallel. He's talking about the death of Christ. And he says the cause of Christ's death was the law of God. That's a great thing to understand. Multitudes of people, that thought has never come into their head. Christ died 
according to the law of God. So the scripture says, at his birth he was born of woman, made under the law. Under the law. That is to say, under the obligations of the law. Under the penalties of the law. And he was put in that position by God and his mercy because we need a redeemer that we might be delivered to scripture from the curse of the law. He was made a curse for us. In other words, Christ's death was a representative death. He was dying for others in the place of others. All the children understand the word representative. It's a it's a very important word. You know, in the, in, in the Olympic Games, we say that America won so many medals, or Britain won so many, Australia won the swimming. They don't really mean that they did that, but we mean the people that represented these countries, we, we call them for the country. They did it in the name of the country. So everybody in the country got the credit. A representative is one somebody who's picked out to stand for other people, isn't it? Paul is saying here that everything that the law requires of us, and it requires full obedience, it requires us to love God with heart and soul and strength, and it requires if we are sinners that we cannot come under God's judgment and wrath. The wages of sin is death. Christ came under the law, under its provisions, under its sanctions, And so Paul says, I, through the law, am dead to the law. Another way the scripture teaches us that is by drawing a parallel between Adam and Christ. The Bible says, as in Adam, all die. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. That is to say, there are two heads of the human race. When Adam sinned, the whole race fell in Adam. Why? That is how God had created man, under a headship, the headship of Adam. By the disobedience of one, Scripture says, many were made sinners. What's wrong with Britain today? What's wrong with us as we're born Not that we are led astray by example. It's not that we hear the wrong things. It's worse than that. It's that we have come into this world with deceitful, fallen hearts and natures. Something that has come from Adam. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Oh, well, this is a a truth that the world scorns and jeers at. But it's a necessary truth to become a Christian. We have to understand Here I am in this world. I not only have to reckon with the sins which I remember, but I have to remember with the fact that I've got a fallen nature that goes astray. There's something profoundly wrong from birth. It's due to our first head, Adam. But here's a parallel. There is a second head of a new race of people. And these are Christians. And they are saved by being in Christ. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ, all who are in Christ shall be inheritors of what is in Christ. They'll be made alive. And this is what's being argued here. 
The claims of the law have been met by a substitute, someone standing in our place. Beautiful words we read in Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53 is all about that truth, and our Lord spoke about it so often. He said one day to his disciples, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground, it abideth alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. What's he meaning? He's saying about himself. He's the corn of wheat that falls into the ground. And it's after he dies, here is this wonderful fruit. And the fruit is multitudes of people being forgiven, cleansed, reconciled to God. Now, the New Testament stresses this for our comfort, that if we belong to Christ, we are dead to the accountability that we owe to the law of God because that accountability has been taken up by Christ perfectly. He died for our sins. He bore the guilt. He did what we could never do. And therefore we are spoken of as, if we're believers, as being dead to the law. The law has no claim upon a believer because Christ has done what they needed to do. And... uh, If you take the time to look at many references on this subject, and we ought to look at them very regularly, uh, that is what it says. Let me just give you one or two in Romans chapter 6. Verse 3, Paul says, Know you not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Baptism is a symbol of of being united with Christ. And we're united with Christ, Paul says, in his death. And then he goes on in verse 6, Romans 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man, that's, that's the old sinner that I was, our old man is crucified with him, has been crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Chapter 7 of Romans, he says there in verse, uh, right at the beginning. Verse 2 and 3. Christian is dead to the law of God. Or take uh, Colossians chapter uh, 3. Set your affections on things above, Paul says. Not on things on the earth, for you are dead. You have died. That's right. And your life is hid with Christ in God. That's the present tense. Something's happened to us because of our death in the past. Paul is saying here in Galatians, when Christ died, I died. When Christ was crucified, I was crucified in him and with him. I am, I was, have been crucified with Christ. Now it's a wonderful truth to get hold of. And it's so important that Paul was ready openly and to his face to correct Peter. Peter was not actually teaching by his words something that was wrong, but by his example, he was implying 
that there is still something else needed if we are to be the people of God. And he didn't actually believe that because he had preached the opposite. He was falling into hypocrisy. He had to be rebuked. Now then move on to the second fact. First fact, a Christian is someone who is dead to the law. All the claims of the law, as far as our acceptance with God is concerned, are met. Now, I know someone might think, well, if that's true, we can do whatever we like and we're still accepted of God. We'll, we'll come back to that perhaps later on. The second fact is this one. The Christian is a person who possesses a new life. I am crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. Yet, the apostle says, I live. But the person who lives is not the person who was there before. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the the life that I now live in the flesh, he is a new life. A life of union with Christ. The old man, the the person that I was, died, died, condemned in Christ. And following Christ's death was his resurrection. Same thing happens with the Christian. Life follows death. The literal translation of verse 20 is this. And there is living no longer I. There is living no longer I, but there lives in me Christ. Well, that's literal. There is living no longer I, but Christ lives in me. Well, that's not real English, is it? So our translators have to make it uh, more straightforward, and they, they have it as we've got in our Bibles. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. So... Here is a wonderful truth indeed. That the resurrection that the Christian has is already a fact. There's a future resurrection of our bodies. In that sense, with regard to our bodies, that we can say we will rise. But in regard to our spiritual life in Christ, it's not we will rise, it's We have risen. It has happened. When we become Christians, we have come in to the resurrection, Christ, life of Christ, and that life has come into us. Not I, but Christ. It's what Paul, it's what the word of God is saying. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, we are told that God has made us alive together with Christ. He has done it already to Christians. And in that verse in Galatians that we read, verse 19, I through the law am dead to the law that so that I might live unto God. The stopping point is not, not death. The stopping point is new life in Christ. So the very heart of this argument is that what is true of Christ is true of every believer. He speaks to his people as his brethren, his people, his children, and all that belongs to Christ belongs to the believer. That's exactly what Jesus was saying. Remember the morning of his resurrection, he meets with a 
solitary, despairing Mary in the garden at Jerusalem, who at first doesn't recognize him, and then throws herself at his feet. And what has she got to do? She's got a message to carry into into Jerusalem. And he says to her to go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and to your father, to my God and your God. See what he's saying? What belongs to me belongs to you. My God, my father, your God, your father. That's what the the text is saying. You could put it another way and say, the Christian is someone who no longer answers for the person that he or she was. That's right. You know there's a coming day of judgment and everyone will give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. And if we're not Christians, all our deeds, all our shame, all our guilt will come before God. If we are Christians, we are no longer accountable to what we did as an old person, an old sinner. We've become new people. That's what the scripture says. God no longer deals with us in terms of what we were, but in the day of judgment, he will deal with us in terms of what we are in Christ. You heard perhaps a little story when Augustine, early church leader, Augustine of Hippo, uh, lived a godless life for a number of years and then came to the knowledge of Christ, became a new person. And one day, one of his old worldly companions met him and said, Augustine, it is I. It is not Augustine, he said. He meant he was a new person. He had passed from death unto life. Now, this is the teaching of Scripture. The life of the Christian is the indwelling life of Christ. Not I, but Christ lives in me. And that means that all the good that comes from us as Christians, we wish there was more, but good does come from Christians. We have holy desires. We desire to work for Christ. We desire to please him. Whatever we do, it's a fruitfulness that comes from Christ dwelling in us. That's what it is. He prompts, he leads. Paul in one place, Paul talks about his missionary labors. They were amazing, magnificent labors. And uh, he refers to them. But the fruit of that labor uh, was not Paul, not I, he says, but the grace of God that was in me. That's true of every Christian. That's why I think it's a little bit disturbing today that when Christians die, instead of having a serious funeral sermon, when we thank God for what people were made by God's grace and we worship God, it's become customary to say, Mr. Bloggs was a wonderful giver and organized this and that and did this and the other. Well, that's not exactly, that's not New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is, and every virtue we possess and every victory won and every thought of holiness are his alone. That's real Christianity. And when we pass from this world, that's the thing to be said, not what we have done, but what Christ has done in us and through us. Now, I should throw in here that I'm not saying that 
when we become Christians, we lose our individuality. That would be a heresy. The very opposite is the true, that when we're empowered by Christ, what we are in terms of natural gifts or whatever is, is uh, increased. It's, it's lifted up. Our, our natural temperaments, our natural gifts, they're not obliterated, but they're set in a new direction. We're given a new life, and the life of Christ takes hold of what we were by nature and lifts us up in himself. Now, thirdly, the third fact. Second fact is the indwelling of Christ. The third fact is that this bond of union with Christ is faith. Faith makes this bond a reality. So until we are Christians, we may have heard many times about the death, death of Christ and heard it read and well, it doesn't really have uh, any much relevance to it. It happened a long time ago. It doesn't seem real to us. But when God deals with us, these old facts become full of life and meaning. That's what Paul is saying. I am crucified with Christ. It's a reality to him. He knows it. This is the effect of faith. Faith is a wonderful gift. Elsewhere, Paul says that uh, verse I'm looking for, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we are being changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's true. That's what faith does. Faith gives us sight. People who aren't Christians say, this is a lot of mystic nonsense. Got no reality. The Christian, absolutely real. It's a truth our eyes have been opened as we sang in that hymn. Lord, I was blind, I could not see. But now, what do I see? Something that makes me want to live to honor and to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, or put it another way. How does faith begin? Well, it's when the gospel comes to us in power. And we hear, we hear the Lord saying to us, Behold, behold, open your eyes. I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. The gospel is all about the hearing of faith. Elsewhere, Jesus says, the hour is coming and now is when the dead, that's us by nature, shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those that hear shall live. Or another verse, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Faith, faith unites us to Jesus Christ. It's not an empty word. Paul says, I live by the faith in the Son of God. Faith anchors us to Christ. Faith brings us into a new world. 
Now, the power of faith is seen in many ways. It's the result of union with Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ says that faith can, can move mountains. Move mountains. Faith can do it. We can't do it. But faith, united to Christ, can do it. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the wonderful things that were done by faith. It talks about um, subduing kingdoms and working righteousness and quenching the violence of fire out of weakness being made strong. You think how powerful the world is. The world is a great power. The devil is a roaring lion. But the scripture says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. That's a marvelous thing. Little feeble Christian, maybe with, with perhaps we've got little education, got faith in our hearts. The whole world tries to draw us from Christ. We have a victory that overcomes the world. It's not my faith. It's faith uniting me to Christ. Faith says, I can do all things, but not I, through Christ who strengthens me. A wonderful thing what a believer can do. I often think, I'm sure a number of you do too, if you know the history, it's an amazing thing that happened way back in 1555 when it was the darkest possible year. Christians were being burnt to death. Nearly 280, nearly 280 of them in a few years. And other Christians have fled to Europe across the continent and it looked as though there'd be no future for the church in England at all. And yet here are these two men going to the stake to die in Oxford, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, uh, one an old man, Nicholas Ridley, more middle-aged, and as they're going to the stake and they're going to be burned, Latimer says to Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. Because, he said, we shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as we trust shall never be put out. That's the language of faith. Everything said the opposite. Everything said that Christians are just being mown down and put to death. Faith says, not at all. Candles being lit. So... This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, that's not to say that faith isn't our continuing responsibility. It is. In John's Gospel, I think it's the 14th or 15th chapter, Jesus says to the disciples, Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. That is to say, we come to cleansing and forgiveness through hearing Christ's word, faith takes hold of his word. And then he goes on to say, you believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, we have a continuing daily duty to believe. And that's what we read in the first epistle of John. This is, this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's written to Christians. It's not that we believe when we become Christians. Oh no, we are to go on believing. This is God's commandment that you believe on the name of his son every day we live. 
and the wonderful blessing attached to that believing. And John mentions one immediately afterwards. He says, he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, that's in Christ, and he in him. In other words, the conscious experience of Christ's presence is related to our obedience. And our obedience is the obedience of faith. And you know that prayer that Paul prays for the church at Ephesus? He prays to God. He says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that he would grant you, grant you to be strengthened by his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. What does he mean? He's been saying that Christ is living in every Christian. But now he says to the Ephesians, we pray this for you. The difference is faith, that Christ may dwell in your hearts consciously by the exercise of faith. Christ is dwelling in the heart of every one of us who believe, but sometimes and some days we live as though it wasn't true. And we forget. A terrible thing to do. But here's Paul praying that Christ may dwell in your heart by conscious faith. Well, I think we have covered that, but uh, he needs adding that uh, faith is a really indestructible thing. Mm. people may think that they can destroy the faith of believers that's never yet happened because Jesus has said of his people I have prayed for you that your faith fail not faith can be put sometimes in the most dark situations Christ is standing there and he's upholding faith won't die you know the beautiful picture that Bunyan gives in interpreter's house he says interpreter took him to a place where against the wall there was a a fire burning. And the strange thing was that this fire went on burning, but someone was standing next to it and pouring water on. And the more water they poured on, the more the flames went up. And Bunyan said he he didn't understand this until uh, the interpreter took the onlooker behind the wall. And behind the wall was another person. And he had, uh, he had supplies of oil and, and vessels of oil, and he was pouring it through. And no matter how much water went on the fire, the fire still burnt. Of course it did. That's what Christ does. Christ was behind the wall. Believers, Bunyan says, he's behind the wall. We don't always see him. We sometimes forget he's there. But this is the work that he's doing. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is because, as Paul says here, faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me, not my love for him, his love to me. That's the source. He is the beginning. He, he is the author. He is the finisher. He starts to love us, never ceases to love us. Through the Son of God who loved me, and who gave himself for me. That's a wonderful hymn of Paul Gerhardt, so sacred head, so wounded. And I love the last verse. Gerhardt says of the believer, these eyes, new faith receiving. This is at the point of death. These eyes, new faith receiving. From Jesus, 
shall not move. For he who dies believing dies safely through his love. It's new faith at the point of death. The oil is still being poured in. Faith's not going to fail. These eyes new faith receiving. Now, a few questions for ourselves. We, most of us hope to meet at the Lord's table in a few moments. Here are the questions then to be asked. Am I dead to the law? Do I know what that means? Christ has stood in my place, borne my condemnation. And my friends, if that is true of us and we know that, something else follows. And it's what Paul says later on in this letter. I am crucified unto the world and the world crucified unto me. My whole view of the world has changed. If I believe that the cross of Christ is the source of my life and peace, this present unbelieving evil world, I am crucified to the world. Are we? Do we understand that? Are we still living for ourselves, for the world, for the tastes and the ambitions of worldly people? If we are, we haven't understood the cross of Christ. We shouldn't be coming to the Lord's table. And what else? Well, do we know that Christ is living in us? Can, we, can I ever say, you know, I'm sometimes surprised what I can do because it's not, it's not I that's doing it. Somebody's done you real wrong, some nasty work, and you know, you find in your heart to forgive them and to love them. Or perhaps some great difficulty comes in your life and you don't know how you're going to get through it. What we were speaking about this morning. Darkness comes. But you do get through it. And you say to yourself, it wasn't I. I was being helped. The Christian knows something about that. We wish we knew more of it, but we know it. And if we don't know anything of Christ living in us and prompting us and leading us, then again we have to question whether we're Christians at all. So Christ has given us this precious gift, new life, and uh, faith that he's given us is faith that will never die, that will be with us all our days. and uh, We shall be more than conquerors through him that loved us. That's what Paul says. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, things present nor things to come, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So... Let us witness to our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Let us go into this needy world and tell them that there's good news and wonderful news. It's that Christ has risen and that Christ is with us. Come and we will help you to meet with him.